dear congregation, this uh, coming, uh, last Tuesday was a classes meeting. <clears throat> and as I was sitting there uh, listening to the goings-on, I was uh, sitting next to my brother, Pastor Jeff the Noble, in the bench there. And uh, as the proceedings were going on, he leaned over and said, uh, you're up next. You can imagine I was seized with panic as I began to consider that perhaps I had some responsibility of which I was not aware. And that was exactly the case. That was the time in the classes meeting when three of the churches would present a report about what was going on in their churches. I had been under the understanding that someone else was going to give that report, but no, it was me who was expected to give that report. And so at that moment, I had to stand up and deliver a report on our church. That was a, a moment of a rather unsettling moment for me, as you can imagine. But it's just as unsettling for us as we come together as a church this morning. And we find before us in a passage of scripture that it's also time for us to come and give our church report, not to the classes of Michigan, but to God himself. Because God brings us the word. And in verse, and these verses that we have read, we see a little slice, a little picture, don't we? Of what the church was in those days when the spirit of God was poured out upon her. And it's our desire, isn't it, to be a church that honors God. And now God has placed before us a picture of this church. Uh, granted, it was in the, in the enthusiasm of its first love, right? It was uh, gathering together. You can, you can imagine the joy, uh, dear friends, as these Jewish people, with all the awareness that they had crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, they had crucified their own Messiah King, the one that they had been earnestly waiting and expecting for for so many years. They had crucified him to the cross. And now they had heard that upon their repentance and upon their faith, upon being baptized, their sins would be forgiven and they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine, my friends, the flush of joy that would have come over them? How overwhelming it must have been for fathers, for mothers, and families, as they came forward to the apostles and as they stood there, uh, whether it was in a river or whether it was in a, one of the many uh, baths that were in Jerusalem at the time, and as the water flowed over them, the waters of baptism, right? As it was poured out upon them, and, and, they, and, they, and they not only felt physically water coming down upon them, but as they felt in their soul the joy that they had been forgiven, that they had been set free from their guilt. When they went home that evening, when they woke up the next morning, the joy, the enthusiasm of what had taken place in their minds and in their hearts, that their record in heaven was cleansed, that there was blood, the blood of Christ, a sin offering for them. No doubt many of these Jewish people had gone out to their herds and taken a goat or taken a, an ox or a, or a sheep and brought it to the temple, not even perhaps fully understanding. But now the understanding came back to them with power. That all those offerings that they had, been, that they had brought to the temple were now come to an end. And that the crucifixion which they had done in their malice had now turned out for their salvation. You can imagine this must have been an unforgettable moment in their life. <clears throat> Paul says, the old things have passed away. All things have become new. I can't think of any text 
that better captures what must have been in the hearts and the minds of those Jewish people as they came to Christ for the first time. The old things have passed away. All that old Jewish religion, that old covenant with all its commandments and all its strictures, all its laws, all its regulations, the continual having to go back to the temple with their sin offerings and their burnt offerings, the old things have passed away. All things have become new. By putting their trust in a crucified Savior, everything had become new. And in the flush again of that enthusiasm and of that joy, the whole church gathered together. And again, the church was growing. God was adding to the church daily. And you can imagine that as they came together, their gatherings would have been marked by, by joy and, and by enthusiasm and, and speaking together and Boy, if there, if there ever was a people who were hungering and thirsting after righteousness, it must have been these people. Are you able to capture something of that this morning, my friends? To feel something of that enthusiasm that those first Christians must have felt when they came to Christ for the first time. Well, my friends, that brings us then to us as a church this morning. Because now we can take our church and the life of our church, the services of our church, and we can bring them to God's word. We can lay it next to what God's word teaches us here. Because I think it's a question in our own mind. How can we be such a God-honoring church? We often pray, don't we, for revival. We pray that the spirit of God would come with power in this church. How will we know? How will we know when we are revived? Children, do you think that maybe we'll hear a, a, the sound of a mighty rushing wind? Do you think that we will see flames of fire, tongues of fire on, on the heads of people, right? Is that the kind of thing we're to look for? Well, clearly not. Because the marks of, the, of a flourishing church are given us right here. We don't have to ask ourselves. We have the answer given us to us. And that is the text that we hope to consider this morning. My text this morning is verse 42. But of course, much of these other verses that are around kind of expand on this. But certainly the summary is given us in verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now I see four things in that chapter, or in that verse, that we will consider. And then I believe I added on another thing on the back that we'll also take up in due course. So the first thing that we are given here in verse 42 is they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. So, my friends, this is the first test then. They're not so much a test as it is a mark of a flourishing church, and that is a thirst, a hunger for teaching. And again, if you put yourselves in the shoes of these Jewish people, they've just learned that their sins can be forgiven. They've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. They felt its power within them. And naturally, their, their earnest desire why? How? What? When? All these questions, right? They would have opened up the, the Old Testament and they would have begun looking. The prophet said this. This was in the, in the Mosaic Law. What does this mean? And, and all these questions, right? And they would have sat at the feet of the apostles and just drunk in this teaching. They had a thirst for the apostolic teaching. How does this all fit together? How is this truth consistent with this truth? You can imagine their reading of the Word of God, but also their weekly, uh, their, their actually, at this time, their daily assembling together. 
in services of worship. Now, you must remember, my friends, that many of the Jewish people that Peter was preaching to had left their homes, right? Their homes were actually far away. They had traveled to Jerusalem. They had never anticipated this kind of outpouring of the Spirit. So they were many miles away from their work and their homes. They were in Jerusalem. But the enthusiasm was so great that they stayed. This was like, like one worship service. Like every day they would come together in the enthusiasm and the excitement. And they gave themselves thirsty, hungering for the teaching of the apostles. Now, my friends, I think we also need to note that this one is given us first. The apostolic teaching in verse 42 is listed first, I think for a reason. Not because it's the only thing that's important, but because the apostolic teaching is, in a sense, foundational. It is foundational, right? This building rests on a foundation. Now, the foundation is not the only thing that's important in this building. That would be ridiculous to say. We need walls. We need a roof. We need a furnace, right? We, all these things that we need. But the foundation is, well, foundational, isn't it? Without a foundation, the rest of it would crumble. In other words, when I look at verse 42, and it talks about fellowship, talks about the breaking of bread and prayer. And again, I'll say more about that. But those things all crumble and crack and become worthless without a foundation of apostolic teaching. And so what about our church this morning then? As I go through these things, I'd like to bring this home to our own church each time. The apostolic teaching, what attention do we give in our church? What value do we place on the apostolic teaching? Now, we cannot sit at the feet of Peter, James, and John, but we can sit at their feet in the sense of this is the word of God that is given to us. Now, we're not examining this morning ourselves as individuals. That's certainly appropriate. But this morning, we're bringing our church report. What is our church report, my friends, in terms of the apostolic teaching? Do we as a church value this? Now, I think we could say, with honesty and sincerity, that we do value it. I think that in the Reformed churches, that's why you find that there's a great emphasis, isn't there, on the preaching of the Word of God. In fact, many times people leave the Reformed churches because they, they grow weary with it. They think there's too much of an emphasis on it. But when I come to verse 42 here, I see the first place, pride of place, is given in the life of the church to apostolic teaching. These people were thirsting and hungering to know the truth about God, to know the truth about Christ, to know the truth about themselves. And they wanted to hear it from the apostolic teaching. Now, in our own church, we've, uh, in fact, this is one of the challenges I gave in the New Year's service. I went back and looked up that sermon. But in the New Year's Day sermon, remember I said that we should give ourselves to Bible reading as individuals. But my second point there was that we engage in the life of the church and that we treasure and value the apostolic teaching as it comes from the pulpit from week to week. But there are many other things that we do as a church, right? We read, I think some time ago I gave out a, a, a reading challenge, right? That you would be reading some book, right? Not, not at, a, at a blistering pace. I, I doubt you read as many books as I do, right, with my work. But still, that at, that at some uh, Pace set by yourself, you would engage in the regular, the systematic reading of some book of theology or of church history or of biblical studies, something along those lines. 
Why? What's the point of such a challenge? Dear congregation, because we need to treasure and value, as a church, the apostolic teaching. And, of course, there are many other things. Uh, Let me just list some of these things. I already mentioned the book reading challenge. But we have an adult class, right, that takes place while the children are in Sunday school. We have the topic and discussion nights on on Wednesdays uh, once a month. We have the Outlook magazine. And I just mentioned some of these things because maybe some of these things are neglected sometimes. But the Outlook magazine, which has uh, wonderfully interesting articles every week in it. Again, why? For the purpose of immersing ourselves in the apostolic teaching. And my friends, we have to say that on the flip side, that when a church begins to grow weary of these things, when the church begins to grow sluggish, lazy about the apostolic teaching, that's not a good sign. right? That means that the the life of that church is fading. And how different this is from from what we see, from what so much that we see in in the church world today is... Uh, how healthy is a church? Well, how many people are members of your church? How many times did it say in this verse, my friends, the, the numbers of people? Now, it did say that, you know, right, that the church was growing, that there were 3,000 added to the church, right? But the numbers of a church is not given us as the test of a healthy church, right? The number of programs that they have, the size of their budget, right? The, the, the flashy nature of their worship, right? And the and all the programs and, and uh, uh, display that might take place in a, in a worship service, right? But pride of place given to the apostolic teaching. So I leave that there then. As we bring our church report, my friends, I ask you to think, to ponder today and all week, what is the health of our church in terms of the apostolic teaching? I move on then to fellowship. Fellowship. Now this one... Uh, with, this is, a, again, a very broad word for fellowship, a oneness of spirit, looking out for one another. And yet, in this con- particular context, my friends, the word fellowship probably, I say probably, again, it's not certain, but probably has the sense of a collection. The collection of money and goods for the relief of the poor. Now, uh, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read to you in Romans 15, just to satisfy you that this really is a Uh, the way this word is understood many times, not all the time, but many times. In Romans 15 and verse 26, Paul writes to the Roman Christians, he says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution, or, or that word fellowship, same word, it's actually the word koinonia, some of you might be familiar with that word, koinonia, have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So the fellowship here may very well be a collection of money and goods for the relief of the poor. Now, I, I say that as well because note in the context that when you come down to verse 44, you very much read these kinds of things. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Right? They, they shared so generously together. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now, of course, uh, some people love to jump on this as an early form of communism, right? Well, of course, this is all voluntary, right? This isn't government-sponsored communism, right? This is spirit-led communism, you might say, right? Spirit-led generosity, where God, or where God has so inflamed the hearts of these people with love for each other that they don't even think of themselves as, that this is mine and that's yours, right? They all share together. And, of course, they would have had an abundance of reason for this, 
because so many of these people were separated from their means of employment and separated from their income. And so they would have had need for a place to stay. They would have had need for even just basic necessities of life like food. So again, there's so much enthusiasm, so much life and, 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 uh, and generosity, and love in the hearts of these first Christians that they share all around. And there is this sense of fellowship. Again, not fellowship in the broad sense of the word, but probably a contribution to the needs of the saints. And so again, I lay that before you, my friends. Is that how we understand our, our property? Yes, we own property, right? We believe in the Eighth Commandment, right? Thou shalt not steal, which certainly implies, right, that we own things. But we also understand that, in a sense, we're not the owner of those things. Because all the worldly gifts that God has given us are gifts from God that we are stewards of. That means, yes, that we are given a, a ownership of them, but ownership as a steward. And that means that God owns it, He's given it to us, and he expects us to use it to advance his cause and kingdom. That is the purpose of the wealth. And by the way, congregation, I don't need to say that we're all very wealthy people here, right? We are extraordinarily wealthy people. In the, in the, if, you, if you look at the population of the world, right, we're all in the 1%, okay? So we're very wealthy people. And so we're under a great obligation then to use that money, to use those funds, to lay them at the feet of God, as it were, and to use them to advance his cause and kingdom, right? The question when we make more money, when we have a promotion, when we receive a raise is not, well, what shall I do with this money? Well, I guess that would in a sense, one sense be the question, right? The question is, how do I advance the kingdom of God with this money? We are stewards of this money. And so in the life of the church, my friends, do we have that kind of generosity that God expects from us? And I can speak from my own personal experience that, there are, that this church is a very generous, and we have been recipients of it. But still, as we bring our church report this morning, I want to lay that before you, because the Word of God lays it before you. That we have that kind of love for each other, where we don't even regard the things that we own as our own, but we bring them to the relief of those who need it. Now, the situation is quite different in our church, isn't it? We don't have uh, people that are destitute, in our, in our congregation, even, even, even outside of our congregation. Sometimes it's, it's not easy to find. Poverty is such a different thing in our day, isn't it? So much more could be said about that. Maybe that would be a good thing to talk about on a Wednesday night sometime. But poverty is such a different thing in our time that so many times uh, we can actually make poverty worse with our, with our generosity. But at any rate, the scripture places before us then this idea of a fellowship, of a contribution, of a generosity for the relief of the saints who are around us and those who are not saints outside of us. We come then to the third one, the breaking of bread. Now here again, you can understand this in a very technical way, right? The Just having a meal together, right? But again, probably the, the, the meaning of this expression is, a, is more narrow. That it's not just referring to the breaking of bread and in terms of having a meal together, but it actually refers to what Jesus did, right? When he broke bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, in our churches, this has become a very, uh, may I say, and I don't mean this negatively, but a very formal thing, right? We have services where we have communion. But my friends, in the enthusiasm of those first days, 
probably every meal. When they came together, every meal was like a Lord's Supper. Every meal was a fellowship. And they had so much love for each other, so much love for the Savior, so much love for the apostolic teaching, that they could talk of nothing else. And so they came together and they had fellowship with each other. And probably at the close of the meal, they would close that meal by celebrating the Lord's Supper together, by breaking bread in a very simple way, right? Without probably much of the ceremony, certainly no form or anything like that, right? But in an in a, in a earnest, sincere, simple way, they would break bread, remembering the body of Christ broken for them. And they would have a cup of wine that they would share, remembering the blood of Christ poured out for them. Now, you know that a meal was something that was very significant in those days, right? A, much more significant than it is today, right? We, we grab a bite to eat and, and, and move on, right? But in those days, a meal was a, a symbol of fellowship, a symbol of intimacy together. And so again, uh, meal sharing, not just the light kind of common thing it is today, but a very intimate, close thing that these believers shared together. Well, I ask you, my friends, then, as we bring our church report this morning, what do we have to say for ourselves on this point? Last week, we were able to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Was there a hunger in your soul for the Lord's Supper? I remember in my old church when I came to church one day and one of the men met me at the door and he said to me, brother, he says, are you, are you hungry? And he didn't mean it to be silly. He was asking me a sincere question, are you hungry? And it really struck me, I never forgot that. It's such a simple question. Are you hungry? Do you need that sustenance? Do you need that visible sign and seal of God's grace to us? That visible sign of Christ being nailed to a cross for our sin. Is there a hunger for that? And also, my friends, as we think not just of what the Lord's Supper means to us vertically between God and my soul, but what the Lord's Supper means horizontally between me and my brother between me and my sister believer, between us as a, an assembly, as a congregation. Because, my friends, it is hypocrisy. It is taking the Lord's name in vain to take the bread and the wine and yet to hold a grudge against a fellow believer or to have an outstanding grudge, something that could be resolved but that you don't do, maybe because of your own pride. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. That is desecrating the sacrament. It says that as well uh, in our form. And so I ask you to consider that. Again, as we bring our church report, where does our church, where do you as an individual and as part of this assembly have that hunger for the breaking of bread? Some people have, have considered verses like this as, as a defense of having the Lord's Supper often, you know, even weekly. And, uh, and that may be a good discussion to have. Uh, the thing is, is, my friends, for us this morning, they were having the Lord's Supper almost daily. Right? They were having the Lord's Supper every time they met together because of their enthusiasm and of their love for the Savior. So I don't really think this verse says so much on, on, on how often we have communion, but certainly that we have communion often and that there be a hunger for it and a thirst for it, a desire for it, that we can't live without it. In the fourth place, we have prayer. Prayer. 
And what do I say about this, my friends? I can just note from this, this passage that this prayer is not something that began. It's not something that began after the Spirit was poured out because it was already in place before, right? In Acts 1 and verse 14, we read that they were, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. But prayer, it's so important. And yet, isn't it true, my friends, that prayer is the first thing that begins to drop off when we begin to decline in grace, when we begin to backslide. Private, secret prayer is the first thing that seems to get compromised. And so this is a, this is a thing, uh, again, for us as a congregation. Are we a praying people? My friends, I can't do the ministry, the pastoring of this church without your prayer. The elders of this church can't lead without prayer. The deacons can't do their ministry of mercy without prayer. May I challenge you this morning to something? I would challenge you, dear friends, that on a Sunday morning, you look around this congregation and we know each other, we see each other. You might know a particular need that someone is struggling with. You might not know, but maybe you could pick someone out, one individual, and say, this week, I'm going to pray for that person. I know this particular person is struggling with this. I know this particular person is struggling with something, but I don't know what it is. I'm going to pray for that person this week and commit as a congregation to praying for each other, to lifting each other up on the wings of prayer. What a blessing that would be for us. And I think the blessing of God. Can you possibly imagine that there would have been a person in need in the Jerusalem community at this time and that these people wouldn't have been praying for him or her? It's unthinkable, isn't it? I mean, these people probably were brimming over with prayer constantly. What a blessing that would be as a congregation if we could hold each other up in prayer. I want to say something as well, congregation, about what we read Signs and wonders. Signs and wonders in Acts 2 and verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Again, as we bring our church report this morning, we might think, uh, well, you know, we are a people of prayer. Not perhaps what we should be, but we certainly pray. We certainly have a fellowship, that contribution for the relief of the poor. Uh, we certainly love the apostolic teaching, but I don't see any signs and wonders. In fact, I've been in this church now for over a year. I don't think I've seen any signs and wonders of the kind that are mentioned here taking place in this congregation. And you know that in the evangelical church world, there would be those, including those uh, who once occupied this church, right? Uh, would criticize our denomination and our congregation for being deficient in this regard that there are not signs and wonders taking place. Now, I'll just note that there's a clue here already in this, in this verse. So I read verse 44, and all those who had believed, sorry, verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place. And what's those last three words there? Through the apostles. And when we find signs and wonders taking place, miracle working taking place in the New Testament, 
it is almost always something that the apostles do or that the apostles anoint another person to do in their name. But other than that, it does not appear in the New Testament that signs and wonders were something that was the characteristic of the entire body of believers. But it was a gift that God gave to the apostles and a gift which the apostles could give to another person. But not farther than that. But there's another scripture that I want to look, and I think I put that in there, Luke 4, where I think we're given a, a clue for how we're to understand these things. In Luke 4, in verse 22, we find Jesus in the city of Nazareth. Jesus is in the city of Nazareth. And in verse 22, Luke 4 and verse 22, and all were speaking well of him. This is, he had just finished his sermon. All were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were asking, is this not Joseph's son? Again, he's in Nazareth, right? Everybody knows Joseph. And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So what the people are kind of grumbling about in Nazareth is, listen, Jesus, you did all these miracles in Capernaum. Why don't you come and do those miracles here in Nazareth as well? Heal yourself. In other words, take care of the people in your hometown, just like you did the people that you, know, you didn't know at all over there in Capernaum. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. So in other words, Jesus is saying there were all these widows in need during that terrible famine that happened during the time of Ahab. But God didn't send his miracle working power to any of the Israelites, but he sent it to a widow woman in Zarephath, a non-Israelite woman. Then he gives another example. He says, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. There were many lepers in Israel, but God did a miracle for Naaman, who was a Syrian, no Israelite, and not for any of the Israelites. Then all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage, right? And that's when they tried to throw him off, the, throw him off a cliff. Well, my friends, the teaching that we have there is that God is sovereign, and how he bestows his miracle-working power. Could God do miracles in this church if he chose so to do? Of course he could. Of course he could. And in, and, in, and in certain circumstances, my friends, I don't even think it's wrong to pray for those kinds of things, especially when we're in times of sickness and great distress. But we always have to fix ourselves on what Jesus teaches in Luke 4 and in other places, that God gives out his miracles sovereignly in his own will, in his own place, and in his own time. And so as we bring our church report this morning, we don't have to check that box, if I may say. We don't have to be concerned that miracles and signs and wonders are not performed in this church. Because those are a sovereign gift of God that he gives when and where he chooses. And it's not a mark of a declining church when miracles and signs and wonders are not performed in that assembly. So yes, miracles and signs and wonders were performed by the apostles. doesn't say by all the lay people. Uh, in, the, in the church at Pentecost, sovereignly, God gave that gift to his people then. And he does not choose to do that today. 
So that one we will expunge from our list, signs and wonders. Well, my friends, that's the, uh, that's the list then. That is the church report. I would ask you, my friends, and challenge you again to take this list home with you, to take this list with you throughout the week, and think about this list. Pray over this list. And as I, I close this sermon now with these points of application, my friends, uh, just a couple things that I wanted to point out in the first application of this church report, some things that strike me. Some things that strike me. First of all is the, the great unity that marked the church during this time. I know we often talk about unity of the church. But I couldn't help, as I studied this passage this week, how many times it is expressed in this, in this passage, how united they were. Now, I'm sure there were many differences of opinion in the, amongst the group. Unity does not mean uniformity. You follow me there? Unity doesn't necessarily mean uniformity. There are going to be differences of opinion on this and that and the next thing. But there was a united purpose of coming together under the saving grace of God that bound them together. No doubt as time went on, these people would have to lay aside something that they really wanted. No doubt they had to bite their tongue at this time, change course of action at this time, but they did it in order to preserve the unity of the body of Christ. That must be a driving factor in any healthy church. And then I couldn't help but notice as well the emphasis in this chapter on meals. Because this is a, an area where I think our church could probably improve somewhat. In our culture, we don't share meals together often, do we? Yes, we have our potlucks here at church, but how many times have you had people from church into your home to have a meal? And I preached to myself this morning too, right? This is, this is different for us, isn't it? But I can't help but notice that the church in that time, under the enthusiasm of the Spirit of God, came together to have a meal together. Yes, that meal um, would close, often close with the, with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. But even just the sharing of meals together, my friends, I think is such a, uh, an interesting thing of how many people in the church have never been to my house for a meal. And so I blame myself for that. But I'll lay it on you too this morning. How many people in the church have never been to your house for a meal? And again, I only bring this up because it occurs so many times here. In verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching to fellowship and to the breaking of bread, which certainly involved a meal. And then in verse 46, again, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. In other words, they had some exercises of worship that they had to perform in the temple. But then, verse 46, and breaking bread from house to house. One day the, the, the gathering would have been in my house. And the next day maybe in your house. But they went from house to house, breaking bread and taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God. Well, I'm just going to leave that there. I think that's interesting for us to consider. And then in the second place, reacting to the church report. As we bring our church report, my friends, we may find things that the church is doing well. And I think that there are things, definitely, that we are doing well. There are other things that we are not doing so well. How do we approach those things? Because I know my reaction, right, and I suspect probably your reaction in the first place, is to begin to think about how so-and-so 
is not doing his job. Such and such a committee is deficient in this respect. My friends, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? Let's all agree to focus on ourselves. What can I do? How can I step forward? We have to have that attitude, right? You cannot change other people. The Apostle Paul would say to his own master, he stands or falls. That's not your business. God will take care of that. But I can take care of myself, right? I can step forward. And instead of complaining about elder so-and-so, or deacon so-and-so, or this committee, or that committee, or this individual, or this people don't, these people don't show up for this or that, or help out with this, let's focus on ourselves. Such complaining about others is detrimental to a church. It's a cancer on a church. Let's, let's give it all up. Let's, let's just be done with it. And let's focus on what I can do. Let's step up. Better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of sin for a thousand days, it says in the Psalms. My friends, how can you be a doorkeeper in this house? There's so much pleasure. There's so much satisfaction that comes from being a humble laborer in the house of God. And everyone has his gift. Everyone has his place. In the third place, my friends, a motive. Maybe as you think about your own life as a member of this church, you feel that your thing, that your enthusiasm has cooled. Maybe you even look with a great, well, not maybe, I think certainly we look with jealousy at this community. What a wonderful thing it must have been. Can you imagine what it must have been like to have been at some of those meetings? What it must, must have been like to share meals with these people? As all they talk about is, did you understand this? And did you know that? And, 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 they're, and they're sharing together. And we're jealous of that. How can we get that spirit back? My friends, we don't get that spirit back by, by digging deep within ourselves. We get that kind of spirit from looking outside of ourselves to Christ. Go back to the beginning. My friends, think about what God saved you from. Think about that hell that you deserved. And think about the bleeding Savior on the cross, giving his life to save you from what you really did deserve. I put this, this song, an old gospel quartet sings this song. If you could see what I once was. Let me just stop there a minute, my friends. Ponder that for a minute. If you could see what I once was, if you can say that without tears. Well, if you could see what I once was, if you could go with me back to where I started from, then I know you would see a miracle of love that took me in its sweet embrace and made me what I am today, an old sinner saved by grace. That will give you a power, my friends, to step forward and to do the Lord's work and to do it with gladness and joy and sincerity of heart. An old sinner saved by grace. Let us pray. Lord, we look back in our life at what we once were. We look back, O oh Lord, at the, at the pit from whence we've been dug the sin that we once lived in, the shame that covered us, Lord, in those days. And we think of that miracle of love, of your saving grace that came and called us out of darkness and brought us into your marvelous light. 
Lord, the least we can do is to step forward, to give our attention to the apostolic teaching, to give our attention to fellowship, to contributing to the needs of the saints, to give our attention to the breaking of bread, to give our attention to prayer. Lord, this would be the real miracle, the real signs and wonders in our congregation when we humbly step forward with gladness and sincerity of heart to do the work of the Lord while we live in this world. Lord, bless our church. You've blessed us, Lord. You have blessed us in so many ways. And we don't look this morning, Lord, for the sound of a rushing wind or for tongues of fire. But Lord, we look for, we look for these things, Lord, that we have mentioned this morning. And pray, Lord, that where they already exist, you would, you would make them stronger. And where, Lord, we've fallen short, Lord, I pray that you would give new strength and new courage, that perhaps the, the flickering flame would be fanned into a brighter, stronger, hotter flame. That this church, Lord, that our lives would be a hymn of praise to you. Lord, remember us then in your mercy. Encourage those who are discouraged. Enliven those, Lord, who have grown cold in the service of God. And give us a new resolve to walk with you with gladness of heart, with joy, in fellowship with one another, praying for one another, and in sincerity of heart. Lord, we commit ourselves to this work and pray that you would forgive us for wherever we have sinned in this regard. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's turn in the blue hymnal then to 443. Faith of our fathers living still, in spite of dungeon, fire, and sword. Oh, how our hearts beat high with joy whene'er we hear that glorious word. Faith of our fathers, holy faith, we will be true to thee till death. And what follows in the first three, or the three, all three verses of 443 in the blue hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.